On October 15, 2009, the Balloon Boy hoax took over our television screens for most of the daytime news programming. A homemade helium-filled gas balloon shaped to resemble a silver flying saucer was released into the atmosphere above Fort Collins, Colorado by Richard and Mayomi Heen. They then claimed that their six-year-old son Falcon was trapped inside the balloon. Authorities say that the balloon reached 7,000 feet during its 90-minute flight. The event attracted worldwide attention and Falcon was dubbed Balloon Boy by the media. National Guard helicopters and local police pursued the balloon. After flying for an hour and a half and approximately 50 miles in distance, the balloon landed 12 miles northeast of Denver International Airport. When Falcon was not found inside of it, and it was reported that an object had been seen falling from the balloon, a search was begun. But later that day, the boy was found hiding in the attic of his home where he had apparently been the whole time. When the balloon boy scare was popped and the mylar peeled back, what was finally revealed? Nothing but hot air, nothing but a huge hoax. It was the local Larimer County Sheriff, Jim Alderden, who summed up the fiasco. When asked to explain the wasted money and man hours spent looking for the boy, when the parents had just set the whole thing up because they were looking for publicity to get themselves a reality TV show, the sheriff sighed. They put on a good show for us and we bought it. It was little Falcon Heen who outed his parents and let the truth slip out. On the Larry King Live television show, guest hosted by CNN reporter Wolf Blitzer, Falcon was asked why he hid from everyone while they were searching from him. The little boy swallowed hard, looked into the camera, and then looked at his father and said, you guys said um, that we did this for the show. It took a little child to tell the truth. To bring the sheriff's words and the child's words together, the entire episode was an example of show and sell. Putting on a good show, selling us a bill of goods to buy, and we bought it hook, line, and sinker. If we were limited to one phrase that summarizes our condition today, the nature of our plight and our problems, it might just be this one. We did it for the show. Too often, for Christians, putting on a show has been the motivation behind our actions. Why do we do what we do? Why do we serve? Why do we give? Why do we pray? Why are we fasting from chocolate or whatever it is that we might have given up for Lent? Why do we do what we do? This week, we continue in our sermon series, Come Follow Me, A Disciple's Journey Through Lent. As we continue to discover what it means to be a disciple today, I invite you to take a closer look at what motivates you to be a follower of Christ. Each day before we leave the house, we look in the mirror, we make sure that we look at least relatively put together, right? That there's no huge pieces of food stuck in our teeth, that we don't have hair sticking out at odd angles, something I don't usually have to worry about. And every year we make annual uh, visits to the doctor for a physical, another one to the eye doctor for an eye exam. For most of us, we'll go to the dentist at least twice a year. All three of those appointments are for what? Preventive care. 
to prevent or at least to catch something before it becomes a major issue. Well, friends, we're in the season of Lent, and Lent is a time in which we're invited to look at ourselves in the mirror and ask, how are we doing spiritually? This is the time in which we ask ourselves, what do I need to work on? How am I faithfully living out God's call on my life? And it's a time when we might need to do some preventive care to make sure something doesn't become a major issue. It leads again to that question I started with. Why are we doing what we're doing? Today we're at the halfway point in Lent. And to maintain or regain our focus, we turn to a passage from Matthew 6, which Pastor Phil read for us earlier. In this passage, we're reminded that an authentic faith is one that puts faith into practice through words and deeds as we seek to experience the presence of Christ on a daily basis. Lent is a season of repentance, but I remind us today that it's also a season in which we're invited into a time of personal and corporate self-reflection and self-examination to really look at ourselves in the mirror. On Ash Wednesday, I invited us in the name of Christ to observe a holy Lent by self-examination and repentance, by prayer and fasting and self-denial, and by reading and meditating on God's word. These are all practices that allow us to be faithful disciples. But today at the halfway point in Lent, I invite us truly to take seriously the call to self-examination. See, discipleship is not a once and done act. It's a daily decision to follow Jesus. A daily decision to seek after Christ as we shift our focus from ourselves to God. Whether you've been a disciple of Jesus for years or you've only recently decided to follow Jesus or you're still thinking about it, Jesus tells us clearly in Matthew chapter 6 that we are to practice our faith and to make sure that we have the right motivation. Jesus says in the first verse, watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. Jesus expects that we practice our faith and it's expected that we have a faith that's alive and growing. And Jesus outlines three different areas that are beneficial and meaningful and essential to our faith, but which also have the potential to become areas of performance piety, where we seek to show off our righteousness to others. These are the areas of giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. These three activities are the most prominent practical requirements for personal piety in Judaism. And they also make up three of the five pillars of Islam. These are clearly important activities for a follower of Christ to perform. But it's important to perform these activities in the right way and with the right attitudes. Almsgiving or giving to the poor was not a philanthropic opportunity for the first century Jews, but rather it was a religious duty. I don't know that modern followers of Christ see giving to the poor as a responsibility, as a religious and spiritual duty. In the past 30 years, giving to churches and religious charities has declined by 50%. Pre-COVID, the average Christian was only giving 2.5% of his or her income to the church. That number was 3.3% during the Great Depression. Yes, in our pre-COVID economy, we were giving less to the church than during the Great Depression. Maybe that's just as much an indictment of the churches and religious charities as anything else. 
because research also shows that those who are religiously affiliated are more than twice as likely to give to charity as those who are not religiously affiliated. But it's a responsibility, not an option, for followers of Christ to give to those in need. If you notice, Jesus begins by saying, when you give to someone in need, not if, when. But we're also to give in such a way that we're not drawing attention to ourselves. When the Christ follower gives, it must never be out in the open to be seen and admired by others, but always secretly as an act of worship to God. Giving is a private affair done entirely to please the Father. The difference lies not only in the motive, but also in the result. The latter brings glory to God. The former brings glory only to the performer. Both have their reward. The former yields an earthly reward, applause and recognition, but only the latter has an eternal reward. Like giving, prayer is a required aspect of our faith. Jesus says, when you pray, not if you pray. If we're not praying regularly, we're missing a major component of our faith. But just like giving to the poor, prayer is not to be practiced for others to see and marvel at our righteousness. Jesus mentions praying on the street corners, which wasn't something that was traditionally done. However, scholars have noted that if someone strictly observed the afternoon prayer hour, they could deliberately time their movements to bring them to the most public place at the appropriate time. In other words, they could be just out attending to their business and just happen to be at the center of a crowded marketplace when it was time to pray. The true follower of Christ, by contrast, is to pray in a, a room that means storeroom. It describes an inner room in the house with no windows and possibly was the only lockable door in the house at that time. Does this mean that we're never to pray in public, like in the context of church or a prayer meeting? No, we see Jesus and the apostles praying in public. But once again, it's a question of why we're doing what we're doing. We're also told not to babble on in our prayers. The stress is on the quality rather than the quantity of our prayers. Now, this isn't a prohibition of either repetition in prayer or set forms of prayer, but rather of thoughtless mechanical prayer. It's not many words that God responds to, but an attitude of prayerful dependence. Jesus then goes on to offer us a model of prayer, which has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer, and which we recite on a weekly basis here at Beacon. And hopefully we recite it with the correct motivations and attitudes. So prayer must be humble rather than ostentatious or filled with wordy jargon. The goal is to worship God and present your needs to him, not to gain notice from others for your piety. The model for prayer that the Lord gives us in the Lord's Prayer is also a model for Christian living. Notice that it centers first on worship of God and fulfilling God's concerns and only then moving to our own needs. So that's giving to the poor and prayer. And the final religious duty, which Christ covers in this section, is fasting. 
And yes, fasting is something that we are commanded to do. Jesus says, when you fast, not if you fast. If Western Christians have gotten away from giving to the poor, fasting is an action which has almost totally been eliminated from our essential practices. This seems to be consistent with the Western paradigm of overconsumption. Fasting refers to the practice of abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. And we don't have time during this message to get into all the details of fasting, but if you want more information on all three of these uh, spiritual disciplines as well as others, I would highly recommend picking up a copy of Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. But fasting is an essential part of following Christ. But just like giving and praying, it must be practiced with the correct motives. Strictly observant religious leaders of Christ's day fasted at least twice a week, and they made sure that people knew it. They made themselves look miserable. In fact, the Greek word used here literally means to make invisible, a vivid expression for making oneself unrecognizable. They would make themselves look so miserable in the process of fasting that they wouldn't even look like their normal selves. In contrast, the true follower of Christ is to look uh, clean and happy and normal while fasting. See, the purpose of fasting is to remind oneself that God is foremost in our lives, even over our basic human needs and drives. So it's a God-directed activity, and it's completely wrong to want others to see your piety and be impressed by it. Rather, only God should know that someone is fasting. Today, many still follow this paradigm of regular prayer and fasting and giving in order to experience Christ. But we're human, and our human condition gets in the way of our discipleship. Far too often, what began as a true and meaningful way to practice our faith can easily turn into a performance, an act for others, a way of demonstrating that we're good Christians. On Ash Wednesday a few years ago, I went out to dinner following our worship service. I had completely forgotten that I had the black cross smudged across my forehead. As we walked into the restaurant, I received several stares, but no comment until I sat down, in which our waiter helpfully told me that I had black stuff all over my forehead. I explained that the ashes uh, stood for the beginning of Lent and how they uh, stood for repentance and, and mourning of sin. And after my explanation, I felt a truly humble desire to share the good news that we have hope in Jesus. I proceeded not to wipe off my ashes, wore them around the rest of the night, even going to the grocery store. But the attention got to my head, and as I walked around the grocery store with my black smudge on my forehead, I walked around proudly as if to say, look at me, people. The next day, the thought hit me. What was I doing? Initially, it was innocent and truly allowed me to share my faith. But later that night, I became like those performing in the streets, proud of the ashes and seeking to put my good Christian faith on display. My motives changed, and it happened without my recognizing what had happened at first. But upon examination, I realized that my human nature had taken over and led to something that did not bring glory to God. Instead, it puffed up my ego and my pride. Do you see the difference? 
It's not that the public act of receiving ashes on Ash Wednesday was inauthentic to my faith, nor is it inauthentic to wear ashes for the remainder of Ash Wednesday. But the authenticity of an act of faith or piety is determined by the motivation behind the action. When I examined myself the next morning, I realized that I had lost sight of the goal and that I had missed the mark. We're human, and our human condition sometimes gets in the way of our discipleship. We move so easily from discipleship to self-promotion. We may post pictures of ourselves serving at the soup kitchen, or create a video of the worship service, or retweet lines from the pastor's sermon. Just make sure to include hashtag BeaconLex when you do. Each of these actions might be done with the best intentions to put our faith into practice. But with a slight change of motivation and focus, we move from God to ourselves. And our motivation can change these actions from authentic practices of faith to self-promotion or maybe promotion for the church. It once again goes back to that question of why we're doing what we're doing. And this is not just a question for individuals, but I believe that it's a question we must ask corporately as a church to really look at ourselves in a mirror and ask, why are we doing what we are doing? Is it to expand the gospel or to promote oneself or the church? It's a slippery slope. Daily, we need to examine our motives and ask ourselves, why are we doing what we're doing? And we need to truthfully ask ourselves whether the focus is on us or on God. What is our motivation? Jesus gives us clear direction for determining our motivation when he says, here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so that you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. I believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God helps us discern our motivation. In order to discern our motivation, however, we must be willing to go to a secluded spot and to be quiet and listen long enough for God to call us to intentional self-examination and reflection. Believe me, we're human and we'll fail but God calls us back each and every time. Friends, Lent is a time for self-examination, a time of having our hearts converted and open for more spacious love. We ponder our habits and fears, anxieties, actions, and inactions. We reflect on all that distances us from the community of faith, from our families, from our loves, from those yearning for connection, from those lost and wandering. Self-examination isn't meant to be harsh or self-critical. It's a willingness to understand our woundedness. Self-examination leads us into the way of making room to love more fully, more deeply, more honestly. Self-examination helps us repent and turn towards love. Self-examination called me back to love on that Thursday morning several years back, still with smudges of ash on my forehead. My ego and pride had gotten the best of me the night before, as it often does. But God called me back, and I chose to turn toward God in an act of repentance. 
as disciples, we are invited to turn back towards God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So through intentional self-examination and reflection this Lent, we can begin to allow the Holy Spirit to point out where we have strayed, where we need to go, and where we can make room to love God and God's people more fully, deeply, and honestly. Today on this fourth Sunday of Lent, we're reminded that self-reflection and examination are part of what makes Lent holy. Friends, today you are invited to examine what your true motives are when it comes to your life and faith. What motivates you to serve? What motivates you to give? What motivates you to pray? Is it to show that you're a good Christian? Or is it to love God more fully, deeply, and honestly? This week, as part of your Lenten discipline, I want you to take a close look at what motivates you. Are you living your faith authentically? Or are there aspects that were once meaningful, but have now become a performance art for others? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the teachings of Jesus. Forgive us for the times that we failed to give to the needy, to pray, and to fast. Forgive us for the times when we've done these things solely for the purposes of being spiritual show-offs. Please help us to perform these actions, which are essential parts of our faith, but to do them as authentic demonstrations of our faith and our worship of you. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. Amen.